again, my privilege to uh, speak to you this morning, continuing on from last week where we, we uh, opened up the book of Job together. We're going to now uh, go into a little, little different direction, but we're going to be looking again at the book of Job. And uh, if I just allow me to open up in, in a word of prayer before we get started. <clears throat> Father, we do, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the comfort that it gives us. We thank you for uh, the truth that it gives us. Lord, we thank you for how it guides us and gives us answers when we have questions. Father, we know you don't answer all of our questions, but we thank you for the answers that you give us. And we pray you would help us to trust you in, in the areas where, that we do not understand. And as we go through uh, your word this morning, I just pray that you would help me to speak clearly. And uh, I pray that you would be at work in all of our hearts as we hear what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I wanted to focus, begin by focusing on the question, <clears throat> why are we born to suffer? Why are we born to suffer? I had a few, a few examples of recent, recent sufferings. Uh, maybe you're familiar with some of these stories, but just to set the stage. It was about 16 years ago, an up-and-coming up young businessman and a loving Christian husband and father of two with one on the way decided to defer his departure for a California trip to early Tuesday morning so that he could spend that Monday evening home with his family. That Tuesday, that was Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, and that morning that young man, Todd Beamer, gave his life trying to wrestle that plane's controls from terrorists as the plane went down in western Pennsylvania. I just recently visited the National Memorial there at the crash site in, in uh, western Pennsylvania on a, my recent uh, Midwest road trip. Nine years ago, to this very day, it turns out, a loving father of six, another Christian man, he had six children, three of whom he had adopted from China. This man was a deeply spiritual, Grammy award-winning Christian singer-songwriter. Maybe you've heard the story. He tragically suffered the loss of his youngest daughter when one of his older children accidentally drove an SUV over her in their driveway. His name was Stephen Curtis Chapman. About two years ago, a woman dedicated to healthy eating, exercise, and the simple country life, whose blood cholesterol numbers and triglyceride levels were so off the charts good, there's not a person in this room, I can guarantee you, who wouldn't want to, to trade her blood work uh, report with yours. She suffered a debilitating stroke out of the blue. Her name was Leona Gregory, my mother-in-law. Less than one month ago, a 19-year-old student by the name of Ethan Roser, who attended a Christian college and was the son of a missionary couple, he was a man that his coach described as resolute in his drive to understand the scriptures, laser sharp in his purpose, which was to know Jesus Christ and to walk with him, and so full of Jesus Christ that Christ spilled out of him with every step he took. He was struck down dead as he stood at the sidelines by an errant hammer that was thrown as part of a track and field competition. You know, we could go on seemingly without end. Lives are taken. Lives are shattered. Tragedy strikes the young, the old, celebrities, and the common folk. And there's no escape from suffering. You wake up one day and it seems like an ordinary day. You go about your usual business and then there's that news report or that phone call. Or maybe it's you. You're in a car accident or your aorta starts to pull itself apart. You know, we've seen that up close and personal. At that point, it's only human to ask, why? Why do these horrible things happen? Why do these horrible things happen to people who love God and, and are trying to serve him? And why do these things happen to me? These questions are not new. Last week, we talked about Job, how he was a blameless and upright man. He revered God and turned away from evil, it says in Job chapter 1. We talked about how he was without warning or apparent cause, suddenly stripped of his fortune, his family, and his health. 
like Ethan Roser, Todd Beamer, Leona Gregory, and, and Stevis Curtis Chapman, Job was a believer, an obedient follower of God, doing his best to live a righteous life. And like these believers, Job suffered unspeakable, crushing loss. He was going about his everyday life, a life of faithful service, when he was suddenly struck down. And he started asking questions. In chapters 3 and 10 of the book that bears his name, he questions why God brought him into this world in the first place. Why did I not, did I not die at birth, he says, come forth from the womb and expire. So chapter 3, verse 11. Why, why would God create him if he's only going to plan to turn around and strike him down, is the question. Job says in chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? He, he goes on. He wishes that he had never lived to see such evil days, and he asks why God doesn't just leave him in peace. Why then, he says, have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died, and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been, carried from womb to tomb. Would he, God, not let my few days alone? Withdraw from me that I might have a little cheer? That's chapter 10. And he questions why God continues even to sustain those who suffer. Why is light given to him who suffers, he says, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but there is none, and dig for death more than for hidden treasures? It's chapter 3. Well, if I can be so bold as to boil these poetic lamentations down to a single question, what I think Job is getting at is this. Why has God so designed the world that I am constrained to live my life amidst suffering, loss, death, and mourning? The answer to that question, I consider we talked about that last week. I just want to review a bit. The answer is to humbly trust God. You know, last week we looked at three truths that the book of Job teaches about God. That God is here, that God is good and just, and God is sovereign. These truths led us to consider, to, to what I consider to be the ultimate answer to the question, why has God so designed the world that I am constrained to live my life amidst suffering, loss, death, and mourning? The ultimate answer is that God is in control, that we need to trust him because he is in control. He is good, and he is just, and two, he is here. He has not left us alone in our suffering in two ways. He sent Jesus to suffer in our place the ultimate consequences of sin and death on our behalf. And he is with us moment by moment by the indwelling presence of his spirit. Now this may not seem to you to be a very logical answer. And certainly many have tried to devise logical answers. Perhaps the most prevalent is the argument from free will. A version of such an argument is based on Adam's free will and his position as head of the human race. The idea is that God made the world good free from evil, and that evil and therefore sickness, suffering, and death came to man because Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And we can quote the Apostle Paul from Romans 5 to show that this statement is in fact biblical. But while the statement is true that suffering and death reign as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, it doesn't really answer Job's question. That's because before anything even existed, God knew how it was all going to turn out. He knew Adam would sin. He knew Job would suffer. He knew about Ethan and Todd and Leona and Stephen. He knew about your trials and your suffering too. And he went ahead and he created the universe anyway. And this is where the book of Job, I find, is so, so important. Not because it necessarily gives us a logical solution to our questions, but because in the face of unspeakable suffering, it confirms the truths that God is sovereign, that he is good and just, and that he is here. And it calls us to repent of our rebellion against God and to submit humbly to our Creator. We should do as Job did in Job's words in, in the beginning of chapter 42, where Job says, I know, God, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, God, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. And then in verse 6, chapter 42, he says, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. 
We spoke about that last week, but I wanted to emphasize that uh, today, that this, this is the climax of the argument between Job and God. I want to emphasize it because I believe this is the most important takeaway message from the book of Job. We are the created ones. He is the creator. He knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that is happening right now in your life, in my life, in the entire universe, from the trajectories of the tiniest subatomic particles to the flight of every sparrow to the movements of whole galaxies. And he knows everything that will happen. He knows where it's all going, and he knows how it will end. And he asks us to humbly acknowledge his sovereignty and to trust in him no matter what. But there's more to talk about. There's more answers. I think that's because God is gracious. Even though he doesn't have to, even though we don't deserve it, he gives us more than, uh, than that call to humble submission and trust. He gives us much, much more. And that's what I wanted to talk about this morning. This morning, what I want us to see is, yes, God calls us to humbly trust, to have faith in him. But he does not leave us without any explanation whatsoever. Instead, he reassures us that though we suffer, and though that suffering may be profound, our sufferings are not accidental. Our sufferings are part of God's sovereign plan, and that that plan has a purpose. The more I meditated on the book of Job, the more I saw that the purpose behind Job's suffering uh, I'm, the more I saw that there was purpose behind Job's suffering and the more I began to understand more clearly that God has a purpose for me in my sufferings too. So this morning I wanted to take this second look at the book of Job with an eye toward discovering God's purposes in our suffering. And I want to be clear up front that this, is, this does not provide us with a bulletproof logical answer to the profound question, why has God so designed the world that I am constrained to live my life amidst suffering loss, death, and mourning. I'm not trying to put a happy face and a positive spin on the trials we endure. <clears throat> but I am convinced that in the face of suffering and pain, Scripture makes these two bold positive statements, two fundamental principles. The first, we already considered that we need to submit and to trust in, in God who is in control. And the second is that we can be assured that our suffering has a purpose in God's grand plan. These two principles help, a, help us make sense of a broken world. They give us comfort and peace, and they provide a reason for us to endure to the end. So last week, we, we looked at that first principle that we need to submit to trust in God, that God's in control. This morning, I want to look at the second principle. Our suffering has a purpose. I see a threefold purpose to our suffering that emerges from the book of Job. The first is God uses suffering to sanctify us. Second is God uses suffering to minister to others through us. And the third is that God uses suffering to glorify himself. So if you want to take notes, you write outline. God uses suffering to sanctify us. That's the first one. God uses suffering to minister to others through us. Second one. And the third is that God uses suffering to glorify himself. So let's talk about how God uses suffering to sanctify us. And by sanctify... I'm referring to progressive sanctification, that ongoing transformative work of God in the heart of the believer to make the believer holy. What does a holy believer look like? A holy believer looks like Jesus. So what we're talking about here is becoming like Jesus, conforming to his image, as scripture would say, conforming to the pattern that he has made for us to follow. This process of pro progressive sanctification is just that. It's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. It takes time. Sometimes we struggle. Sometimes it's two steps forward and three steps back. But over time, through it all, God, by his grace, brings the believer into conformity with Jesus. God uses many means to achieve this end. Scripture tells us that his word is a lamp unto our feet. It tells us that his spirit guides us into truth and that he is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Scripture also tells us that other believers can stimulate us to love and to good deeds. So God uses many, many means to, to conform us to Christ. God also uses suffering. God uses suffering to mold and to shape us into conformity with, image, with the image of his Son. Uh, if you have your Bibles or electronic device, you could flip over to uh, Hebrews 12. I'm going to read Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. There the writer of the Hebrews says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin. 
and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. By the way, that's a quote from the book of Job, chapter 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time that seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. He disciplines us for our good so that we, we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now the writer to Hebrews makes some bold claims here. First, he asserts that God brings trials into our lives. The writer here has in view suffering that comes as a result of persecution. But he equates that persecution with the discipline of the Lord. The Lord has brought the suffering upon us. Second, the trials can be severe. If you check out the context and the language, he talks about the possibility of eventually shedding blood at the beginning of the passage and of fainting in verse 5 and scourging in verse 6. The suffering is something that will seem sorrowful in verse 11. And the larger picture is that this is in the context of comparing the believer's experience with that of Jesus, who we are reminded earlier in, in verse 2 of that same chapter that Jesus endured the cross. So the trials that the Lord brings can be severe. Third, the trials have a purpose. The Greek word for discipline in this passage contains within it, the, uh, it's, the Greek word is paideia. It contains within it the word pais. It means instruction, that trains someone to reach full development, full maturity, or chastisement that corrects and educates. The purpose of God's discipline is to teach us his children and to bring us to maturity. What exactly are we learning in our suffering? What exactly is its purpose? The writer is very explicit. Discipline produces righteousness, he says in verse 11. So discipline conforms us to the image of Jesus. God brings the suffering. It can be severe, but it has the purpose of conforming us to the image of Jesus. As I was researching for this sermon, I came across a recent, recent testimony to this very truth on desiringgod.org, uh, the website of John Piper's ministry. I just wanted to read what this man posted there on that website. His name is Daniel Ritchie, and this is what he says. I was born without arms. That is the best way to summarize my story. I stepped into suffering at birth. My physical body is a billboard for my pain. This has brought mocking, cruel jokes, stares, and the constant feeling that I am not like anyone else that I meet. I have never been able to hide. Many people can bury their pain, but my heartache is written all over my two empty sleeves. Those sleeves tell a story without my mouth ever saying a word. My pain almost swallowed me, but Christ showed me how much greater he was than my empty sleeves. I'm thankful for my pain. All of, of the frustration that has come with it has reaped a bounty that I could never have produced on my own. God stepped in and carried me along in my weakness, letting me taste his strength, his grace, and his love in new ways. In my pain, he has magnified so many of his attributes. God has shouted to me through my pain and reminded me of his truth. As the mocking words of men fell on my heart like an avalanche, God showed me that it is only his words that bring life. It was in my brokenness that I saw God's true strength as he carried me along. It was in my seeing my shattered identity as a disabled boy 
that I could see the beauty of being a blood-bought son of God. God used my hurt so that he could clearly write the lessons of his grace on my heart and set my affections on him. It's an amazing testimony. And in that testimony, Daniel refers to C.S. Lewis's famous lines, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Our first response to Daniel's story should probably be to thank God for our arms and our hands and to never take them for granted again. But second, we should appreciate what Daniel is saying. Through the suffering, the suffering that came from being born without arms, God reached into his life and transformed him in ways that Daniel understands that, apart from his suffering, he would never have been reached and he would never have been transformed. Daniel has a deeper understanding of God's strength at work in him. He has a deeper understanding of God's love for him and a deeper understanding of his identity in Christ. He also says that his suffering has resulted in setting his affections on God and not on the world. It's an amazing testimony. I'd love to hear what Daniel has to say about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he comes to the part where Jesus says, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole, your whole body to go into hell. But I think da Daniel would affirm that conformity to Christ should be valued above a pair of healthy arms and hands. In the book of Job, Job in his suffering learned the lesson, this, this very lesson of humble submission and trust in God. And I remarked last week that God wanted to bring Job to the end of himself so that Job would be fully humbled before him. I don't know if you remember I said Job wouldn't have reached this point because of his possessions. He wouldn't have reached this point because of his family that loved him. He wouldn't have reached this point even by his obedience and his offerings. But God used suffering to bring Job to that point of humble trust. Remember how jo uh, James puts it in James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Are you perfect and complete? Are you conformed to Christ's image? Well, maybe not perfect and complete, but you're not that bad, right? I mean, God doesn't have that much work to do on you before you get to heaven, does he? A few touch-ups here and there, and you'll be, you'll be good, right? You'll be set. Oh, think again. Is your righteousness worthy to be compared with the righteousness of Christ? Do you, like Daniel Ritchie, value holiness, the integrity of your spirit, more than the physical integrity of your body? Have you, like Job, fully humbled yourself before your Creator and put your trust in Him? And are you able to say along with Job, though He slay me, I will hope in Him? If you're anything like me, you still have a long way to go. And God will use suffering to mold and shape you into conformity with His Son. So that's point one. God uses suffering to, to sanctify us, to conform us to his son. That brings me to an interlude between points one and points two. So point one was God uses suffering to sanctify us. Point two, God uses suffering to minister to others through us. And point three is God uses suffering to glorify himself. But what led me to this conclusion, what I want to talk about now, that God, um, <clears throat> to the conclusion that God used suffering to sanctify Job, was more than what I've already said. More than that God used suffering to bring Job to, this humble, uh, to humble himself before his creator. Because as I thought about Job's humility before God, I thought about how Jesus is the epitome of humility before God. So you follow me on this train of thought. I thought about Philippians 2, starting in verse 6, which tells us that Jesus, though he enjoyed equality with God, did not regard it as something to be held onto, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And I started to understand that Job's humility was an echo of Christ's humility. And then I started to understand that Job's life conformed to Christ in many other ways. 
And I really thought, of, to me, what dawned on me was a new way to look at the book of Job. Specifically, I saw that uh, God intervened in Job's life to conform his life to the life of his son to the extent that Job became what we call a type. And it's a beautiful type. A type is a technical term for an Old Testament pattern of Christ. The more we understand how Job's life reflects Christ's, the more we can understand the role of suffering in the Christian life as we seek ourselves to become conformed to that pattern. So let me explain this a little bit. First, I wanted to look at how closely Job mirrors Jesus. And hopefully some of this will be new for some of you. Did you ever wonder why at the beginning of the book of Job, Job is called blameless? We know that that can't mean that he was truly sinless. Scripture tells us that no one is good but God alone. There's none among men who is righteous, not even one. We could say, well, Job was blameless in the sense that he was faithful in confessing and repenting and offering sacrifices for his sins. But there's something deeper than that. Job was a type of Christ, an Old Testament prefiguring pattern of the righteous Son of God who truly was blameless. I hope you're beginning to catch on on what's going on here. We can go further. We can wonder, why does God restore Job at the end as we read this morning? Look at how it happens. Job's restoration doesn't come immediately following his humbling himself in verse 6 of chapter 42. It only comes later in verse 10 where it says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Now look back at verse 8 chapter 42. Let's see what God says to Job's friends. Go to my servant Job, God says, and offer up burnt offer, a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. Think about that. Job is to pray for his friends, to talk to God about his friends, to serve as a mediator between God and his friends. And God accepts Job so that he does not deal with Job's friends according to what they deserve. Do you know somebody else, capital S, somebody else? Somebody that serves as the the mediator between God and man? Somebody that the Lord accepts so that he does not deal with us according to what we deserve? That would, of course, be Jesus. And I hope you're catching on now. Job is a pattern for Jesus, a pattern to help us better understand Jesus' story and Jesus' mission. It turns out there's a lot more parallels than what I've already said. In Job, Job goes on and on lamenting his, his birth, his unjust suffering, his, his feeling abandoned by God. I think we need to read his laments from the perspective of seeking to understand the humiliation in Jesus' incarnation, his truly unjust suffering, and his being forsaken by God as he suffered God's wrath on the cross. I could go on, have a long list. Uh, Before his humiliation, Job was rich. He was highly respected in his community. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says he was the greatest of all men in the East. And verse 25 of chapter uh, 29 says that he was the king among the troops. You could say a lord of hosts. We know before his humiliation, Jesus was with the Father, rich in glory, owner of all things, ruler over all, and he was the Lord of hosts. Job was tested by Satan. Jesus was tested by Satan. Job says, I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my necessary food. Jesus said, A man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We know Job worshiped in the face of his suffering. Likewise, Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. I thought this was really interesting. Job was twice humbled, right? First, he lost his possessions. Then Satan came and, and talked to God again, and then Job was, was humbled again. He lost his bodily health. And that's exactly the pattern that Jesus followed. Jesus was twice humbled. First, he set aside his heavenly throne. Then he suffered, and he died. Job was betrayed, betrayed by his wife in particular, who told him to curse God, even as Satan had asked him, uh, was, was hoping would happen. And we know Jesus was, of course, betrayed by, Satan, uh, by Judas under Satan's direction. Job was abandoned when his children, uh, children were killed, his family was taken away from him. 
Jesus was abandoned when his disciples scattered. Job was disrespected by his friends. Jesus was despised and rejected of men. Job was falsely accused. Jesus was falsely accused. Job was mocked. He said that his uh, suffering made him a byword among the people. And we know certainly Jesus was mocked in his suffering. And Job, of course, suffered under God's hands. Job tells us that the Lord took away, the Lord brought adversity in chapters 1 and chapters 2. And later he says, the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison drinks my, uh, my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And that's just a picture of Jesus, really, suffering the cup of God's wrath on the cross. When I realized all these parallels between Job and Jesus, I understood in a new way that Job's conformity to the image of Christ was supernatural. It had to be. There were too many connections for this to be accidental. God had so arranged Job's life so that the whole arc of his story would mirror the story of Jesus. And Job didn't know it at the time, but his suffering served a greater purpose. Yes, it conformed him to the image of Christ, and that end in itself was enough. But his story is far more significant. It also laid down a pattern, that of the faithful suffering servant, and that prepared the way for Christ. And beyond that, his story has endured for millennia. How many believers have turned to its pages to find help in time of need? And I can't help uh, stop my mind from imagining, and I have no biblical evidence for this, that Jesus himself, who was the living word of God, of course, and intimately familiar with every jot and tittle in Job, that Jesus found strength, comfort, encouragement, and a voice for his lamentations and suffering in the words of Job. Jesus would have known, of course, that God had a plan for his suffering. But when he meditated on Job's story, he would have seen that plan worked out in real life. He would have seen that God was with Job, even when Job didn't feel it. That God was good and just, even when Job couldn't see it. That God was sovereign and in control, even in Job's darkest hour. I can't help but think that Jesus was ministered to by Job's story, even as, as he, in his hunger, was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he told Satan that the word of God was his sustenance. So God supernaturally used suffering to conform Job to Jesus, and Job's conformity had cosmic impact, really. Job was a type of Christ. His conformity to Christ was more than an internal thing. His life impacted the world around him. Likewise, our conformity to Christ through our suffering is supernatural. The whole arc of our stories are meant to mirror the story of Jesus. And that brings us to points number two and three. So point number one was that God uses suffering to sanctify us, to conform us to Jesus' image. And as we conform to Christ, God will use us to point number two, minister to others through us to impact the world around us. And finally, we'll, we'll talk about how God will, will use us to glorify himself. So let's first consider how our suffering can impact our world, how God uses our suffering to minister to others through us. God ministers to both unbelievers and believers through our suffering. He can draw others to himself for the first time. He can use our sufferings to bring them salvation. And he can also use our suffering to draw believers closer to conformity to his son. We've already noted that we see this in Job's story. After Job humbled himself before God, Job served as a mediator between God and his friends. In the passage that we read this morning, <clears throat> we saw how God commanded Job's friends to bring sacrifice to the Job and offer them up and have Job pray for them. We are also told that Job offered sacrifices on behalf of his children very early in the book. So part of Job's conformity to Christ, part of his serving as a type of Christ, was that he played that priestly role of mediating between others and God. In his conformity to Christ, Job brought others to, to God. If you can turn to First uh, Peter Chapter 2, we find similar truth. Here in First Peter, Peter's calling servants to bear up under unjust masters. And let's look how he explains this in verse 21 of chapter 2 of First Peter. Peter says this, You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, 
but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So Christ's suffering, we know, had the purpose of atoning for our sins and reuniting us, us lost sheep, to our good shepherd. But look at what Peter says next, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So Peter has a chain of, of reasoning here. Peter's telling us that our suffering has a purpose. You have been called for this purpose, he says. In our suffering, we are to follow Christ's example, to bear up under ill treatment as a uh, servant to a master, he says, bear up under ill treatment, endure injustice, to return good for evil, and in doing so, we play a role in God's plan to win others for the kingdom. In the process, we don't ourselves bear the sins of others, of course. Jesus bore our sins. But we point to the one who did bear their sins. Peter's point is this. People are watching you. They're watching how you endure injustice. They're watching how you suffer. And the question comes, are you suffering as Christ suffered? To the extent that you are, you are cooperating in the process that God is working in your heart to conform you to Christ's image through suffering. And in that work, God can do more. He can reach through your suffering to those who are disobedient to the word. So there's a parallel that just as Jesus' sufferings atone for our sins, so our suffering can be a catalyst that God can use to change other people's lives. As we are conformed to Christ through our sufferings, we can take on the role of the representative of Christ to other people. And paralleling that reconciling work that Christ. Christ's suffering has achieved for us on the cross. Our suffering can play a part in reconciling others to God. And we could debate about in the passage whether or not the husbands in question in 1 Peter there are believers or unbelievers. But Scripture really supports both possibilities. Our suffering definitely uh, has, has a role to play in God's calling unbelievers to salvation. I was reminded of what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He says, suffer hardships with me as a good soldier of Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Paul here clearly sees his suffering as a means through which the gospel goes forth and God brings his chosen to salvation. And he reinforces that idea in the book of Colossians. It's chapter 1, verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. In what sense does Paul's suffering fill up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings? Certainly we know there was nothing lacking in Jesus' sufferings. John tells us in 1 John chapter 2 that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And when Jesus died, we know he said, it is finished because his sacrifice was sufficient. But what Paul is saying is that the spreading of the gospel through the world would not be accomplished by Christ's sufferings alone. It would be accomplished by Paul's suffering and by our suffering as we follow in his example and are conformed to his image and do our jobs as faithful ambassadors on Christ's behalf. Modern day example, if you, if you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint, you know they suffered great loss. Loss of a husband and a brother, both of them missionaries to a violent native tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. But these women trusted in God they trusted that God could use their suffering for a purpose. And they suffered well. They went to live in humble circumstances among the very tribe that killed their beloved. And out of their suffering, salvation came to a lost and dying group. Jesus has called us to suffer as part of his plan for extending the benefits of his suffering 
to those around us. There's more that could be said. God also uses suffering to equip us to minister to others, for example, who are suffering. And I don't have time to unpack that now, but I did briefly want to mention 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with a comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. A lot of, a lot of comfort in there. But <clears throat> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we are able to comfort those who are in affliction, who, in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I've definitely seen this principle in the lives of those who have reached out to help, uh, help my family as we deal with my mother-in-law's suffering. People who have been touched by the impacts of uh, loved ones' disabilities have in turn showed us so much compassion and grace. And Lynn and I have been so thankful to the Lord for that. What we're seeing is God's comfort given to others in their suffering flowing through them to us. And it's been a wonderful thing. So when we suffer, as we seek comfort in God, we need to keep this in mind. God comforts us in our affliction so that we are able to comfort others. Finally, I want to talk about how God uses suffering to glorify himself. So we've seen one purpose in our suffering is uh, to conform us to Christ's image. We've seen that as we are conformed to Christ's image, a second purpose for our suffering comes into play, that God uses suffering in our lives to minister to those around us. Finally, let's talk about how suffering serves the purpose of glorifying God. I want to go back to that passage that we read earlier, uh, chapter 42 of Job. We see here another parallel between Job and Jesus that points us to the truth that ultimately suffering glorifies God. What catches my attention at this point in the story is in verse 11. There we read, Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a gold ring. This scene, you might, you might just kind of read over that and say, okay, God restored Job. But this scene is a type of the scenes in heaven that we see described in the book of Revelation. And I just want to take you through that because it just amazed me as I thought about it. We read there, it says, all his brothers and all his sisters ate bread in his house. When the Lord restored Job, his relatives, his brothers and sisters came to, to his house and they celebrated. Can't you see in that the gathering of the saints that is Jesus' spiritual brothers and Jesus' spiritual sisters gathering in heaven, in God's house, around the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We see that in Revelation 19, a picture of the union of Christ with the church, where there is joy and gladness that abounds as all give glory to God. So just as Job is reunited with his family after his suffering, Christ will be united with the church, his bride, his family, after his suffering. Also in that passage in Job 42, it says they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. I think this is a type of all heaven falling in worship before the Lamb who suffered, suffered the wrath of God and was slain. Job's consolation is a type of that, that scene in heaven where the angels and the elders are gathered around God's throne and gathered around Jesus. It's in Revelation 5. And they say, Worthy are you, for you were slain and purchased for God. And, your blood, uh, <clears throat> and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people from every nation. And the parallel goes at least one step further. <clears throat> it says in Job 42 that all who had known him before, each one gave one piece of money and each a gold ring. To understand this parallel, I want to back up for a second and understand first that Job had been a great benefactor to society. In chapter 29, Job tells what it was like before the suffering came upon him. It says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. 
I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. And he says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. This is Job speaking. I was father to the needy. Can you just hear the echoes of Jesus? You know, Jesus, the one who said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of, the sight, of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And he says, the blind receive sight and the lame, the lame walk. Before he suffered, this is exactly, exactly the pattern that Job had. He took up the cause of the oppressed. He sought justice and did what was righteous. He helped the poor, the outcast, the lame, the blind. He was indeed a type, an Old Testament pattern of Jesus. But that's not my main point here. Rather, notice after his suffering, at his restoration, there's sort of this George Bailey type moment. If you know the uh, movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where everyone that, that George has helped, just as Job had helped everyone, everyone that, helped, that George Bailey had helped in the movie, comes to his house to bless him with a donation. And here in, in chapter 42, verse 11, we see the same thing. All his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, each one gave him a piece of money and each a gold ring. And now we get to the, the fulfillment of that in Christ. You know what it says in Revelation. It says that all those who have been saved and blessed by the Lord, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and they will worship him who lives forever and ever and they will cast their crowns before the throne. Even as we see the, everybody giving a ring to Job. So as we see Job restored, we see he's conformed to the image of Christ in Christ's uh, glorification. And ultimately, this is, this is where suffering will lead. God uses suffering to bring about our sanctification, our conformity to Christ. God uses our conformity to Christ to minister to those around us and to bring others to salvation. And the salvation and sanctification of a multitude so great that no one can count from every tribe and, all, <clears throat> and every nation and peoples and tongues will bring glory to God forever. They will stand before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, it says in Revelation. And they will cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels and the elders around the throne will fall on their faces before the throne and worship God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. As it says in Revelation 19.5, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. This is God's grand design. Job was part of that grand design. Jesus was part of that grand design. We are part of that same grand design. So Job's suffering had a purpose. Jesus' suffering certainly had a purpose. And you can trust the Lord that your suffering has a purpose too. So in conclusion, I just wanted to challenge you to suffer with a purpose. God calls us all to seasons of trials and suffering. Sometimes the suffering seem too much to bear. Someone dear to us dies. Someone deeply betrays us. Or our own health is gravely compromised. Sometimes the suffering is almost trivial. Maybe we get stuck in traffic. We didn't get enough sleep last night. Maybe we stub our toe. Sometimes it's in between. But the question comes, how will we respond? Will we get frustrated? Will we get angry? Will we get bitter? Will we despair? Will we become depressed? Will we lose faith? Our response needs to be simply Jesus. We need to put on Christ to, co to cooperate with God's purpose in our suffering, to conform us to his image. And as he conforms us to his image, we will understand that there's a larger story that God is telling that our conformity to Christ is part of his story, part of his ministry through us to others, and part of his grand plan to, to bring glory to his name. I just want to close with a couple of quotes from Stephen Curtis Chapman. As it is the anniversary of that, that tragic event in his life where his young daughter was run over. In an interview <clears throat> three years after that, uh, after his daughter made the transition to heaven, he said, he said this, he says, if I believe what I've been singing all these years, that God is God and he's on the throne and he's really in control and I'm really trusting him and his promises really are true, do I believe it? Do I believe him? Do I believe his word? If I do, 
then I'm still here. I still have moments, as brief as we know they are, and now we know they're very brief. There's a reason God still has us here. And there's an eternity. And I'm aware of that more now than ever. It's become more real now. I have tangible, literal treasure in heaven. That's my daughter. So I'm longing for that day. I believe that's coming. But there's a reason I'm here today. And what am I going to do with, with the moments that I still have? And a couple of years later, he said, I really believe that God is going to tell a story and that there are some unimaginable chapters that come into our lives. Cancer, thinking you're going to lose a child, or maybe even losing a child. Yet if I believe anything that I've ever sung and written, it's that it's going somewhere. Maybe it's going to make a lot less sense in my Southern Baptist upbringing of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's a lot bigger and a lot messier than that. It might get way uglier than you thought, but there's a story that's unfolding in the midst of all this. And ultimately, God's going to unfold an amazing, beautiful, epic Stephen Curtis Chapman. That epic, that story, is that God would be glorified. You remember what Jesus told the disciples when they asked him about that, that blind man and said, why was that blind man born blind? And Jesus said, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So no matter what you're suffering today, no matter what the future holds, trust, trust in God. Trust that one, God uses suffering to sanctify you. Trust that two, God uses suffering to save and to sanctify others through you. And trust that God will use suffering to glorify himself. Humble yourself and trust. Trust and put on Christ. Put on Christ and preach the good news. And in everything, give glory to God. And the works of God will be displayed in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege <clears throat> that it is to be a part of your, your grand story. As we've seen how you orchestrated events through history, thousands of years ago in Job's life even, to prefigure what you were going to do through your son. And we see how it all led up eventually to your son being glorified and your name being praised. And Lord, we know that hasn't been fully accomplished yet, but we look forward to that day. And we give you all the praise and all the glory for allowing us to be a part of your great story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.